The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. This idea of justice already was taking seed, and I even got experience of that when I was at the bar, how difficult it was for poor people to actually access the justice system. So I was always interested in the interface between law and people's lives. Welcome listeners to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. It's Yasmin here, great to have your company as ever. So today my next guest has been described as a firecracker and that she certainly is. You will hear this in this interview. She is Margaret Owen, OBE. She's 91 years old. She's still practicing as a human rights barrister associated with Nine Bedford Row, which is a barrister's chambers in London. Margaret and I cover a lot of ground. We talk about human rights. Um, We talk about what sparked her interest in this, her life as a barrister, those cases that really got to her, that had such a profound impact on her. We talk about her public speaking, the fact that she's a prolific writer, gender equality in the justice system, her work for Widows for Peace Through Democracy, what gets her up in the morning, her motivation, her resilience, and she's got some great nuggets of advice for young lawyers as well, aspiring to enter this profession. When I spoke to Margaret, what was coming through for me, and I wonder if you feel the same when you listen to this, is that I'm not doing enough. There are things that I care about, that I'm deeply passionate about. You know, as lawyers, we are always trying to pursue justice and think about disadvantaged people and how do we create that equality. And actually, I'm probably not doing enough. And Margaret, I don't think she's aware of this at all, but she has this ability to make you really question yourself. You know, why do you get up in the morning? What are you actually doing? in the pursuit of justice. You know, I've not been on a hunger strike. I have no desire to. There are other things that I will do in the pursuit of justice, but she does really make you think. And I find that incredibly inspiring. You know, through her grit, her determination, her, you know, perseverance to keep going, to try and change things, make real effective changes. I find that really inspiring to think about what am I doing? And I hope you think about those questions as well and take action. The Hearing. Welcome to the podcast, Margaret Owen, OBE. It's lovely to have your company this morning. How are you? I'm very well excited about being here. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Margaret, you have dedicated a significant part of your life to advocating for human rights. You're a human rights barrister and you you have specifically focused on women and children. So the first question I wanted to ask you was, what actually initially sparked your interest and commitment to this cause? Well, it's a very good question. I think forever, in a way. Remember, I'm born in 1932, and I come from a Jewish family, and my grandmother was an economic migrant or refugee from Lithuania, escaping pogroms, in the late 19th century. And my father was a solicitor. Although we didn't talk about human rights in those days, he was, in fact, very much a human rights lawyer. And therefore, when I'm growing up and when I'm about 12 or 13, we come to the end of the World War. And there I am with the Nuremberg trials going on. And then I went to Cambridge. And who is my 
most incredible, inspirational teacher there. It's Professor Lauterpacht. And he's the lawyer who actually coined the phrase crimes against humanity for the Nuremberg trials when Lipkin was talking about genocide. And it was Lauterpacht who said, genocide is about the group. We've got to think about the individual. So it was all sparked off by my growing up in the shades of the Second World War, thinking then about all those displaced people and the survivors of the Holocaust. But also when I was at Cambridge, I was almost torn. I did a lot of acting. I always thought of myself as a sort of Porsche. The quality of mercy is not strained. So I think it was all inspired from those times at Cambridge and growing up where there was the horrors of what had happened in the Second World War that made me think about law and being a lawyer as absolutely related to the pursuance of justice. And that's what really set me on that path from those early days. Interesting. And before we recorded this, you you were telling me about your time at Cambridge, that you were one of very few women there at Cambridge. It was extraordinary. There were only two women in the whole of my year reading law, only two of us. Gosh, so what what did that feel like? It was pretty antagonistic. And we didn't have any law dons at Girton at the time. We had to go to other colleges because there was no law dons at Girton. And they actually told us not to go to the criminal law lectures by somebody called Professor Barnes, who had been also a champion boxer. And for one day, he'd been president of Mexico. And he hated us. He always said, good morning, gentlemen. And he was incredibly rude to us. And we were actually advised by our tutors at Girton to avoid his lectures. It was like that. And in a way, when we went into the lecture rooms, People didn't really want to sit next to us to be seen sitting next to these two women. You know, it was very misogynist in those days over the law. And when I went to the bar, again, it was quite difficult to get pupillages. They'd say there were no loos for women in chambers. And then it was a really difficult time at the bar in the 50s because a lot of the men, the boys, were already in their 40s who'd come out of the been demobbed after the war. So it was extremely difficult. I mean, again, as Sherry Blair said on one of your podcasts, you know, our great model was Rose Heilbronn as a QC. But I didn't stay at the bar very long. I did my pupillages and I stayed just for three years because I really wasn't earning enough money. And I was still living with mummy and daddy. And so I left the bar And I forgot I was a lawyer for a few years, and then I came back again. But I think also this idea of justice already was taking teeth. And I even got experience of that when I was at the bar, how difficult it was for poor people to actually access the justice system. So I was always interested in the interface between law and people's lives, actual the reality of people's lives, particularly the most disadvantaged people, the poorest people. Let's talk, Margaret, then about your time out. So when you left the bar for that period, what what were you doing then in that time? Well, I did something completely different. It was the beginning of television. And I left the bar and 
I went off and did a bit of journalism. I went off and traveled for nine months. And then I came back and I joined Granada Television in their research department up in Manchester. And I completely forgot I was a lawyer. But a lot of the programs that I was involved with were programs on social issues. And then I, I got married. And then we came back to London. And I was really lucky. I did a second degree at the London School of Economics. This is extraordinary. I had four children. It was in 1967 or 8. I had four children. My husband was a professor at Imperial College, so I wasn't on the breadline. I paid no fees, and I got a full-time grant, which enabled me to pay the mother's help to look after my children. And I think I left LSE every afternoon at three to go and pick up the children from school, go down to the country. And then also, what was extraordinary, the examinations. I think examinations test people who are good at examinations. So although I didn't even read every single book, by this time I'm in my 30s, I got the only distinction of the year at LSE. And I think that again showed me that exams test people who are good at exams. I have a photographic memory and I know how to write. And I just threw everything and I love exams. So I did that. And then what happened? Idris Amin kicks out the Ugandan Asians. And I got very involved in the coordinating committee to welfare Ugandan Asians. And that's when I suddenly remembered I was a lawyer. And then I met the then John Ennels, who was a director of the United Kingdom Immigrant Advisory Service. And I joined him and became his senior counsellor and got back into the law. But I got back into the law having had experience of working in a whole lot of other areas. And I think it's really important that we actually broaden the way we see our lives as lawyers so that we actually can encompass all sorts of other social issues, which if you're in that very, very narrow, narrow legal stream, you aren't aware of. So I think that was really important to me that I'd had another experience. It's an interesting background. And I think otherwise, if you're, you're in a bubble, if you're not seeing what's going on outside that bubble, it sounds like you've got a wealth of experience there, which is so interesting. So when I was at LAC, I was able to do my field studies uh, in probation and and looking at people in prisons. And it gave me a, a much wider understanding of what was going on outside that legal bubble. Because you've been a very prominent figure in the struggle for gender equality, particularly in the justice system. So what I'd love to hear, Margaret, is what have been some of the most significant milestones in this journey? And what challenges do you still think remains? Well, after I left Ukias, I had the most amazing time as head of law and policy at International Planned Parent Federation, IPPF, which is the umbrella for all the family planning associations across the world. When I was head of law and policy there, it gave me an opportunity to travel to many developing countries and actually look much more closely at the issues surrounding the status of women, which in so many countries was absolutely, you know, bottom, bottom. 
And so that's when I really got into looking at women's rights, reproductive rights particularly, but everything to do with the low status of women and how that was a trigger for more inequality and more poverty and the impact upon um, women and girls of very patriarchal discriminatory systems. But what were the most important cases I've done? I just go back to when I was at Ukias. I have to say that my time at the United Kingdom Immigrants Advisory Service as a senior refugee asylum lawyer, in a way, looking back, that was the most satisfying job I ever had. Why? Because in those days, unlike today, I could win cases. I could go to the tribunal and I could win cases. I could even get invited to sit on the green velvet sofa of Alex Lan, who was the junior minister for immigration at the Home Office, whose permanent private secretary was somebody called Claire Moss, who was to become Claire Short, head of international development. And I could sit on his green velvet sofa with my files and ask him to use his discretion on compassionate grounds. I mean, this is unthinkable today. But one case that I really remember, because it's important, is that I lost a case. I was representing two Tanzanian couple whose jobs had been Africanized in Tanzania, and they were here, and they had three children here. They would not have been a burden on public funds. They had a house for them. One was an accountant. They were quite well off. This couple were in their 50s and not in their 60s. They didn't come, they weren't covered by being elderly. And so they put the wedding of their daughter early before they were deported. And we took with us, my husband and I, my youngest son, Dan, who was then eight years old. And at that wedding, the couple behind me, they cried all through the wedding. And that affected my son. And the next day, age eight years old, he wrote a letter to the then Home Secretary, Tory David Lane. And it started, I'm only an eight-year-old schoolboy, but I'm ashamed to be an Englishman. I just think that's an example about how we must always allow or welcome in children, young children, to listen in. Okay, they might be bored, but it might actually trigger something in them. I just thought that was a very important example about how we have to actually attract the interests of young people at a very early age to also for them to understand what injustice systems that we have to change. Margaret, it sounds like throughout your career, your work has often required you to confront very distressing situations and challenging situations. And how do you maintain your motivation, you know, and resilience in the face of such adversity? What What's the secret there? Well, I think the fact is that one is up against such, you know, walls of adversity makes one go on and on and on. And it's actually really, I'm now even more passionate than I've ever been before, because now even if we look in the context of our illegal immigration bill or the whole nightmare of the way we are treating refugees, it makes you more passionate and more determined to, to struggle on. 
when the, it's now we're at a, t- a stage when we're really in danger in relation to the status of women and the eradicating violence against women, there's almost a pushback. It's actually getting worse. So I think it makes one more determined to keep struggling and to bring other people in with us. And what I think is really important now is having men and boys with us on everything that we need to do to ensure that women do enjoy their full human rights and that there is real gender equality in women's empowerment. And I love what Mary Robinson said a few years ago on a panel, that in every country, however bad it is for women, in every country there are serious men who understand that unless we have true gender equality, we can have no real democracy or or freedom or justice. I mean, I can hear the passion in your voice. Have you always been a passionate person? Yes, but I don't actually like the word passionate because they never use that about men and they tend to use it about women as if we're being emotional and not or intellectual or not practical. So I sort of get cross when people say, oh, you're so passionate because I wouldn't be doing this unless I was passionate. So you see why I have concerns about being always described as passionate, because I think it might be a bit of a sexist put down. You're right. The language is so gendered, isn't it? The way we use that. What what word would you use then? I wouldn't use passionate. I just use, you know, determined. That determination was there very recently because you embarked on a six-day hunger strike, didn't you, to raise the awareness of the case of the British-Iranian detainee Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. And that was, was that a couple of years ago, Margaret? Yes, but it wasn't my first hunger strike. I've done three others. I did the first one I did for Shaker Arma, who's a British citizen who was in Guantanamo Bay, wife and children here, never charged with anything. And I did a hunger strike for Shaker Arma. He's now back here. Clive Stafford Smith represented him. And I did another hunger strike because I work a lot on the Kurds. The Kurds are suffering a genocide, as you know. And Abdullah Ocalan, the Kurdish leader, has been in solitary confinement for the last 24 years. And terrible things are happening to women who are victims of not just a genocide, but I call it a femicide. And I did a hunger strike with them over hunger strikers who were dying, women hunger strikers who were dying in Turkish prisons. And then I did the Nazreen Ratcliffe one because it was so amazing. What an incredible story that was with Richard Ratcliffe on his 21-day hunger strike. And I went to see him when he was sitting outside the foreign office. And I thought, we've got to help this man. We've got to do something with him. And because I did that short hunger strike, I only did eight days, but it meant that a big organization called FILA, which is women's rights organizations, they sort of publicized my hunger strike so that all over England, lots of other women were doing that hunger strike to get her released and brought back. I just think sometimes we have to take that sort of action to try and get proper attention. Well, it certainly got a lot of attention because I remember hearing you on Woman's Hour with Emma Barnett 
talking about it. And so it got you some media attention. And I remember I saw Nazanin at the Women of the World Festival, which is held at the South Bank every year around International Women's Day. And the lecture hall was absolutely packed. It was so moving. I mean, people were brought to tears. And she was, you can see this is very raw for her. And she will be adjusting forever, I think. I don't know how you come to terms with a part of her life which was stolen, really. But what is incredible about her also, and Richard, they're not stopping. They're still campaigning, you know, with all their might to get release, not just of the other people who are detained in Iran who are British citizens, but in other countries where there are British citizens who are unjustly in detention. No, I think she's absolutely incredible. The Hearing On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. So, Margaret, I wanted to hear a little bit about the nonprofit organization that you set up in your director of Widows for Peace Through Democracy. Tell us a little bit about that. In all the work that I was doing on women's rights at IPPF, and my job went from IPPF when Ronald Reagan stopped all the funding to United Nations Fund for Population Activities, UNFPA and IPPF, when he stopped it all because of family planning and and, um, safe abortion. And then I left IPPF and I went to work as a consultant at WHO and ILO. And then I was teaching judicial administration for the Royal Institute of Public Affairs. And my husband, my beloved husband, he developed lung cancer and he died in 1990. And I was a 58-year-old widow. And I had been invited to go and teach a course on law, women, and development at the UCLA in Los Angeles, when one of the judges that I was speaking from Malawi had a sick baby and asked if there was anything I could do because they were magistrates, not judges, and they couldn't afford Great Ormond Street. And luckily, next to my cottage in Dorset lived the head pediatrician of a hospital in Salisbury in Wiltshire. And he said, I will take the woman and baby. And his wife arrived and came into my house with her baby, her sick baby. She looked around my living room and said, and you mean your husband's brothers let you stay here and keep all these things? And that triggered, I did know a little bit about widows, but through my work in IPPF that I 
but nothing very clear. And her words rang in my head as I crossed the pond to UCLA. And that's when I began to research about the status and rights of widows and began to discover all the horrendous things that happened to them right outside the law, their lives determined by extraordinary harrowing patriarchal customs. And this was coming up to 1995 and the Fourth World Women's Conference held in Beijing. And it was there that I hosted the first international working group meeting on widows. And that's when I set up my first international widows organization. The first one, it was called Empowering Widows in Development, and now it's Widows for Peace Through Democracy. I've just come back from the DRC, the Congo, where 50% of all the women in the Congo are either widows or half-widows, that is, women who don't know where their husbands are. They are husbands have been disappeared or missing. Are they in mass graves? Are they in prison? Where are they? But wherever we are, it's widows who are the poorest of all poor women, who are subject to the most appalling torture, mourning and burial rights, who aren't allowed to own land, or can be treated as chattels, inherited, forced into a forced marriage with a husband's brother or cousins, and so on. And that's how I set up Widows for Peace Through Democracy. And just it's been a long, long struggle that still goes on. And we have all these conflicts everywhere now. And who are the victims of conflicts? It's the women. What happens in a conflict? Rape is now a well-used weapon of war. You divide the men and boys from the women and girls. You kill the men and the boys. And you rape or put into sexual slavery the women and girls. One great triumph just last year that we finally got from the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution on the treatment of widows. But we have a whole lot of documents and UN documents. We've got something like the UN Resolution 1325, which says that women must be at peace tables. But of course, they never say anything about widows. And the end of November last year, the Foreign and Development Office hosted a big conference on preventing sexual violence in conflict, hosted by our government. But they wouldn't allow us to even have a panel on widows. Nobody wanted to talk about widows when it's widows who are often the survivors of sexual violence in conflict. So this goes on. And I keep having to say to everybody about this, because widowhood is a root cause of expanding and extending poverty across the generations. It's the key driver of women taking girls out of school and giving them away to the traffickers or into early marriage, making more child widows. And it's just still absolutely scandalous that the international community does not see this as a great priority. It's absolutely essential if we ever want to have any sort of stabilization or peace in the world, that we stop because widowhood creates more inequality and more poverty that fuels future conflict. 
I won't say any more, but that's why that goes on. And the other work that I do, of course, is very much to do with the Kurds. And I'm now, I'm unfortunately, on Turkey's blacklist or restless. I can't go to Turkey anymore because I was constantly reporting on the political trials. And, of course, Turkey really is targeting women activists, women leaders, even assassinating them. Many women mayors and parliamentarians are in prison in Turkey. And, of course, in Turkey as well, there are many widows and half-widows, as there are in so many countries where conflict happens. And this is happening now in Ukraine. Well, there'll be many widows in Russia, in Ukraine, in the Sudan. So that's why I go on. I go on and I go on. I didn't know that figure, Margaret, 50% in the Congo. That is a very striking figure. Why do you not think widows are not getting the attention then? Is it is it ignorance? Yeah. Everyone asks me, why, why is there such reluctance? Even the CEDAW, that is the Committee of the UN Convention on Discrimination Against Women, in spite of all our efforts and our dossier on our website, you will see our website, www.widowsforpeace.org, we've got a dossier of discrimination against women, but the committee still rejects our pleas to have a general recommendation on widows. And our response to that all over the world, I'm very involved with a campaign to have a new treaty because the CEDAW is 41 years old and it doesn't really address violence against women in all its different forms, nor violence against widows. And so we're now trying to get the UN to adopt a new Every Woman's Treaty, and that will have three articles on the particular violence against widows. But to go back to the Congo, where I've just been, it's unbelievable, our illegal migration bill, and where this government wants to send people to Rwanda, when Rwanda is actually, through these armed groups and M23, raping and killing and looting in eastern Congo, creating you know, uncounted millions of widows. So it's unbelievable that, that our government is supporting Rwanda and thinks that they, I don't think they'll ever be able to do it, but they say that they're going to send people to Rwanda. I don't think it's ever going to happen because it's against the law. So this makes me even more determined because I, I can't bear my country's reputation being trashed by us breaking international laws like the Refugee Convention. So that's why you ask me again and again why I go on because I have to go on because we cannot be silent when these things are happening. It, it's a depressing picture, isn't it? And something you I want to pick up on, Margaret, you said you think that things are getting worse for women and girls. I mean, what do you think the landscape is? Well, it's interesting. I've just come back from an international peace conference in Albania, in Tirana, two weekends ago. And the title of that was Worldwide Interventions to Live Together Safely. And in my speech at that conference, where I was fortunate, very honoured to be guest of honour with a lot of people who are to do with police and Interpol and ministries of interior from all over the world, particularly from the Balkan countries as well. And I had to say, 
it isn't just in the global south, although it is extreme there in conflict situation, but everywhere in the West, in developed countries, we see how violence against women, it's on the increase. And we know that in every country, particularly during the COVID lockdowns, violence against women increased. And we've got very disturbing reports in this country, not only of the very few prosecutions and even fewer convictions for rape, but actually that within the police, within the police services, women serving in the police are also victims of great misogynism and sexual assault and even rape. And then when we are at the UN, every year we're at the UN Commission on the Status of Women, it's now a question of hardly moving forward. We do everything we are to keep the language in place that we've already got. But you see, we're now living in a world where there are more and more populist, right-wing, misogynist, racist regimes that are also warmongering, and they're mainly run by men. And I said in my speech the other weekend in Tirana, let us everyone look at the Kurdish model for gender equality and women's empowerment as absolutely central. And let's ensure that we have more and more women in decision-making at every level and have the idea of these co-chairs. You know, in the Kurdish model, every single organization, whether it's the army, the national party, the police, the courts, everything is headed by co-chairs. And I'd like to see the World Bank and the International Criminal Court headed by co-presidents, a man and a woman. And I know I'm talking to you as a lawyer, but it is the connection that law has with politics and policy. So that's why I say, although I work as a lawyer, and that gives me the authority to always talk truth to power, you know, you have to embrace much broader issues and concerns and influences, which are, of course, geopolitical. And what is the most urgent issue now is that we have to all come together, together as a human race, to safeguard the planet and stop all these civil wars. And I think that there's a vested interest in war and the whole extension and expansion of the arms industry. And this is, again, where we need to have women in decision-making so that why is it in this country when we have signed the ATT, the arms treaty, why is it in this country that we are still selling arms to regimes which violate human rights law and particularly violate the rights of women. So again, about law, we need women also in the decision-making so that we actually comply with our international obligations, whether it's under the CEDAW, under 1325, under the Arms Treaty. We need to have more and more women I'd like to see 50-50 in every decision-making at every level have a 50-50 on every committee, men and women equal. How fascinating, Margaret. I mean, I could talk to you for, for probably another hour or so or even longer. But my final question to you is this, is that there'll be a lot of younger people listening to you, hearing the determination in your voice, not passion. I'll stand corrected on that one. 
And, you know, looking back over your extensive career, is there anything that you would have done differently? And also, what lessons have you learned that you think would be valuable for those who wish to follow in your footsteps? Well, I just want to say something. I wish in a way I hadn't done law as my first degree. And I'd say to young people who want to be lawyers, think about doing anything first, whether it's science or classics or philosophy or history, literature, do something else. And then, rather like the American system, do law after you've done your first degree in something else. I mean, we need lawyers who've got a scientific background, who've got a technology background. So that's what I would say to young people. And also, I am so glad to see much more diversity now that we've got many more women coming into the law from different backgrounds. Because we certainly don't want it to be white, male-dominated, nor do we want it to be, you know, only in the province of people who are comfortably off and wealthy. So we need to have much more help so that people from disadvantaged backgrounds can become lawyers. And we need much more legal aid so that people can, in this country can access the justice system. If you're wealthy, you can afford your lawyers. If you're poor, disabled, it's much, much harder. But I do ask young people to think about the law as a really exciting, you know, because it, it, it affects every part of our lives. And, you know, they can decide what area of the law they want to go into. I just think it's marvellous to be a lawyer. And if you are a lawyer, it gives you that authority to always talk truth to power and protest when your governments are breaking the law and behaving unjustly and unfairly. Margaret, you have been an absolutely wonderful guest. I've loved listening to you, hearing about your pearls of wisdom, the determination in your voice. It's been lovely and thank you so much for having me. It's been, lo it's been lovely talking to you and I'm really grateful. Thank you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.